Today's show is sponsored by BMC, and BMC wants to know, is your business on its A-game? The A-game is when systems are intelligent by learning from markets, where automation is paramount yet effortless, and when technology and people work as one in an enterprise. The A-game is your business at its absolute best. BMC calls this the autonomous digital enterprise. Find out more at bmc.com slash A-game. That's bmc.com slash A-game. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is The Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to The Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from the massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. February continues to roll along, getting towards the end of February, almost into March, so 2022 is uh, cruising along very quickly. Um, let's jump right into Cloud News Week. A couple of interesting things, and then we're going to dive into a, a sort of an interesting new topic um, that uh, we're kind of excited about and kind of a topic we haven't touched on before. So let's get right to Cloud News of the Week. First off, a couple of acquisitions and a couple of companies that uh, we are familiar with or you'd be familiar with if you listen to the Cloudcast. Uh, Fugue, who is a security company uh, we've had on uh, in the past, was acquired by Sneak. So Sneak continues to uh, expand upon their uh, their security footprint, their security offerings. Um, you know, Fugue is a, a company that, um, you know, again, all in sort of the, the developer DevOps security space. So another DevSecOps uh, play. So congratulations to the team at Fugue. Uh, second one, uh, former sponsor of the show, Len- uh, Linode or Linode, depending on uh, how you like to pronounce it. Um, you know, the company who really uh, you know made a name for themselves, uh, making it simple to get Linux VP- VPSs, and uh, you know, kind of have carved out a niche for themselves around uh, sort of Linux-centric cloud computing, <clears throat> was acquired by Akamai. So Akamai, obviously incredibly well-known in the CDN space, and uh, CDN is going to be a little bit of a common theme this Cloud News of the Week. Obviously, we've you know, talked in the past about, you know, some of the things going on with Cloudflare and, and the work they're doing around uh, bringing compute out to the edge with their CDN network. And now uh, Linode um, getting acquired by Akamai. Uh, there's a really good, if you really want to dive deep into what happened with this acquisition or what it potentially could be, uh, go take a look at Ben Thompson's write-up uh, from this week over at Stratechery. Um, he's been covering this space quite a bit, both um, with, uh, with Cloudflare, but also looking at what uh, the whole sort of CDN market's doing and how it can potentially, um, you know, start to, to erode or, or eat into uh, some of the things that the Amazon does. So um, interesting to see both those acquisitions. Uh, the Fugue one did not have a dollar amount associated with it. Uh, Linode was bought for $900 million. So a nice acquisition there. Congratulations to the Linode team. Uh, and then kind of building on this sort of CDN type of theme or the idea of of pushing compute closer and closer to the edge, um, AWS is expanding out their local zones. So this was something that was announced, uh, I believe it was last year, might have been uh, might have been the year before actually, um, you know, talking about bringing essentially sort of uh, extending AWS regions out to physical uh, locations. So not just, you know, a region, uh, U.S. East, but really expanding it out uh, into a number of specific cities. So originally they rolled out 16. They are rolling out 32 more cities around the globe. So giving them a really big uh, point of presence, kind of extended point of presence, if you will. So 48 cities. Uh, the full list is in the link to the show notes. Um, it's in the cloud news of the week. Um, so I think this is, you know, it feels like a big deal. You know, more and more companies are trying to figure out what their edge story is. More and more of them are doing, 
you know, services that are, you know, metro-based and, and all sorts of things like that. So this potentially, um, you know, becomes a big deal. Again, extending uh, those AWS services closer and closer to the users and the data. And then finally, last thing, another sort of Amazon story. Uh, Amazon and Elastic uh, have reached an agreement on their trademark infringement. So Amazon was using the Elastic name in their Elastic search service. Um, and they kind of went through some, some legal... Uh, back and forth uh, about a year or so ago. Finally got that worked out, and uh, the two sides will uh, will now uh, let their lawyers go and work on something else. So if you're if you're into sort of lawsuits and uh, copyrights and trademarks and stuff on open source, that one's for you. Uh, but with that, we're going to kind of wrap it up. Um, you know, not, not a huge, huge week, a couple of acquisitions, but, uh, you know, we're starting to get into where we're going to start to seeing show season start to kick in in May, or I'm sorry, March and April and May. So I think we'll start to see more and more announcements happen. Uh, but it's been, you know, a little bit of a slow year so far for 2022. Obviously, there's a lot of other things going on in the world to uh, to keep us occupied. But uh, we'll wrap up Cloud News of the Week. And like I said, we're going to dive into a new topic we've never really covered on the show. Uh, it's called data observability. Uh, obviously, we've covered observability from a platform and application perspective. We're going to dive into uh, data observability right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by Usage AI. Usage AI is for companies trying to rein in their AWS EC2 spend. Usage AI is the only cloud cost platform that automatically applies the cost savings recommendations they provide you, netting you up to 57% off your EC2 spend. No code change, no downtime, and no engineering work required. Usage AI's automated reserved instance manager automatically buys and sells three-year, no upfront reserved instances on your behalf to maximize your coverage and minimize your compute spend. Bundled with a buyback guarantee, Usage AI allows companies to get all of the savings of reserved instances with none of the long-term commitments. They are contractually obligated to buy back your reserved instances at any time. Sign up in as few as five minutes to join companies like Deal, Kick, and FabFitFun by visiting usage.ai slash cloudcast to get started today. That's usage.ai slash cloudcast. You know the drill. You're falling asleep and you're waking by an emergency page. It's your night on call and something's wrong. The good news is you've got new Relic, so you can quickly run down the instant checklist and find the problem. The lambdas seem good, but something's up in the APM. Dig deeper and there's another set of errors in Kubernetes. Ask the team to roll back and the problem solved. That's the power of combining 16 different monitoring products into one platform, so engineering teams can see across their entire software stack in one place. You can pinpoint issues down to the line of code and resolve it quickly. That's why dev and ops teams at DoorDash, GitHub, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. Whether you're at a cloud-native startup or a Fortune 500 company, it takes just five minutes to set up New Relic in your environment. The next late-night call is just waiting to happen, so get New Relic before it does. You can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gig of data free forever with no credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com slash cloudcast. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And, you know, folks, if you've listened to the show long enough and, um, you know, you know that there's always a couple of things that, that always really kind of scratch a niche for us. You know, one of them is um, we get a chance to talk to, you know, founders of, of new exciting companies. You know, two, if we get to talk about some things that, that we've never really dug into before. Um, and if we can combine those two things together, um, you know, we always find not only it, it, it's exciting for us because we get to learn, but um, we also find that it's also some of the best shows that we have. So really excited today to talk about a topic that I feel like we've sort of scratched the surface on, which is observability. But 
but we've never really dug into data observability, all right? Like we've looked at platforms and applications, but we've never really dug into data observability. And so really excited today to have Kevin Hugh, who is co-founder and CEO of Metaplane. Kevin, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, like I mentioned before, it's really great to talk with someone who's been in the podcast space for so long. Uh, the Cloudcast was one of the first podcasts I listened to over a decade ago when first getting into engineering. So I appreciate all the hard work that you put into making this happen. Yeah, well, we appreciate you being a listener and uh, especially for sticking with us for so long. There's a lot of, lot of other options out there. Um, before we dive into Metaplane and data observability, um, give us a little bit of your background. You've you've done some some pretty interesting things uh, at, at at very very high level. So give us a little bit of your background, and then what ultimately led you to starting uh, Metaplane and, and getting into this space. I originally wanted to become a physicist. Uh, that's what I studied in undergrad, and throughout the course of studying physics, one of the big hallmark courses is experimental physics. Uh, at MIT, they called it the Junior Lab or J Lab. Okay. And uh, this was a very challenging course by reputation. Uh, every two weeks, you uh, replicate a Nobel Prize winning experiment. And I remember, yeah, it was super interesting, whether it's like counting muons or making all sorts of different measurements. Uh, yeah, the first week you do the experiment, and the second week you analyze it. And I remember thinking, like, wow. All of my colleagues are so talented, uh, but everyone did the first week, the actual experiment in the same amount of time. It was the second week when you have to analyze the data and then communicate your findings that turn into a huge bottleneck for some people. And that really inspired me to go into uh, computer science, right? trying to build better methods for people to analyze and visualize data because uh, it's so ridiculous that you have so many talented talented people in the world who uh, face this enormous friction because they essentially don't know how to write R or MATLAB. Yeah, no, that's I, I mean that's that's sort of fascinating. You you went into an area obviously, um, you know, physics, you know, has a lot of breadth to it, but but you sort of got into that and this one sort of uh, project, if you will, or even one sub part of a project. You know, shifted your thinking, shifted where you wanted to focus. That's um, that had to be sort of an interesting moment for you, I would assume. Well, I think I really went back to the drawing board and realized I am not a 10x scientist. Some of my classmates at the time existed on another dimension. You know how sometimes you meet these people that solve problems in completely orthogonal ways, very original thinkers. That was not me. Uh, but I thought, you know, if I could help build tools to that make 10 other people twice as effective uh isn't that the same thing as being 10x yeah no no i i <laughs> i can completely agree with you I, I i remember the moment yeah i remember the moment in college it was probably about a week or so in that you realize like the people around you are just they're just at a different level and you're and there's a moment where you're a little bummed out at first because you're like oh man you know what, what what am i getting myself into? and then and then you're kind of in awe of it because you're like you know there's just it opens you up to a, you know, kind of a realization that the world has, you know, just different levels of, of pretty amazing people. So, yeah. And I know, uh, you know, it's been a long time, but, uh, you know, I used to do some work where we sponsored some things over at MIT and, and yeah, the, the level of people that are there sometimes blows your mind. So, um, let's, let's dive a little bit into, into the space that, that you're now living in, which, uh, I'll call it sort of data engineering, if you will. Um, there's probably a lot of things, but, 
Um, give us, you know, let's sort of start about the, you know, kind of talk about the concept of like, what is a data engineer? What does their life look like? What are they trying to do, um, you know, to, to be successful, whether it's, you know, for themselves, for their own projects, but, but, you know, for the companies or the organizations they work for? This is such a great question. And maybe we can even go back to the origins of the, the current uh, wave of data, sure. uh, which kind of coincides with my the time that I spend doing research, uh, trying to use machine learning models to recommend data visualizations, data analyses, uh, semantic type predictions. And back in like 2013, 2014, I would say that was a little bit before data science became such a hot term. Uh, do you remember that? Oh, yeah. No, I remember the, I think there was a Harvard Business uh, article that said, you know, sexiest job in America, data scientist. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. So sexy, Hadoop, all the rage, right? Companies uh, trying to get a real competitive advantage by investing in, in data. Uh, and I think companies were right to do that uh, in the same way that software uh, kind of turned from a cost center to a real differentiator for certain businesses to even being at the core of a whole new industry. Uh, we're starting to see that a little bit with data. Okay. Uh, except that companies put the, the car in front of the horse a bit where you know you would hire these big legions of data scientists and machine learning engineers uh, but the data infrastructure wasn't in place and right. right you can't train the sophisticated recommendation model if you don't even have a table of events right customer uh, data events and that's what data engineers do yeah. Well, and I remember, you know, it was, uh, yeah, you're, there, there was a lot of sort of cart before the horse or chicken and eggs things of, um, you know, we, we've got to hire data scientists, which was, you know, really new in a lot of organizations. They were like, hey, we have business analysts and we have Excel. And then it was like, oh, we're, you know, look, we're, we're collecting all this data. And then we went through the challenge of, well, but, but the data is fragmented. It's in this organization or this application or whatever. And, and everybody kind of looked to a Google or an Amazon or whatever, and they were like, well, gosh, they, they make all these smart decisions. You know, how do we, how do we fix that? And I feel like, yeah, there was a lot of sort of like, well, but if you, if you don't have the right smart people, then you're stuck. But if you don't have the right enough data, then you're stuck. If you don't have the right data infrastructure, then you're stuck. And it, it was always a little bit of finger pointing um, in the early days of, of trying to make this, you know, be successful or add value to the business. There is so much to do. Right, like not only getting a database that you can fit a lot of data into, uh, but also building all of the connectors to right. the sources that you might be interested in, modeling the data, plumbing that into different systems so the data can be used. There's a lot of work to do. Uh, and the emergence of the data engineer, and very recently the analytics engineer, uh, is kind of part of that need. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the way that you sort of identify those those even those two terms data engineer analytics engineer like is one responsible for sort of building the infrastructure so that you know data can flow and things can be connected and another one is you know running those python and r models or like even within those two things how do you you know kind of think about it or where do you see you know, what, what do you see in the industry and in reality between those two kinds of jobs what i see is that data organizations are very Entropic, I would say, where like if you go to one company, 
what a data scientist does at that company could be completely different from what a data scientist does at another company. Okay. And same thing is true for a data engineer. Uh, some terms are becoming a little bit more crystallized so that we see data teams, like one classic composition is data engineers who are responsible from everything between taking data from a transactional database, like an internal system or an external system, putting it into a data warehouse to modeling the data, uh, and then data analysts and data scientists using the data. And analytics engineers are kind of in between where they have the domain knowledge and the business context of a data analyst, but are also able to model the data in the data warehouse. And the emergence of this role makes it such that you're no longer bottlenecked at this juncture where right, the data engineer stops and the data analyst starts. But this is a very recent development. Yeah. You know, if, if somebody came to you and said like, hey, um, or, you know, you, you were speaking to a bunch of, a bunch of data engineers, like what, what's their big, you know, I know you said that like different jobs might be a little bit different, but like what are the top four or five, six kind of common problems you see them, them kind of complaining about or wishing went away? Um, you know, like what's, what's the more modern life of them, right? There's obviously certain things have gotten better, clouds available, resources are available, but like what are still the big, the big rocks they're having to push, if you will? This may be oversimplistic, but the job is at the end of the day, taking data from point A to point B and then transforming it to form C, which is usable to the end user. And the most important job is to do that, to get the data into the places that it needs to be and then to make it usable. And this already is a huge task for the first data hire at a company. Uh, It's been getting easier a little bit with Moore's Law basically birthing new product categories into existence, whether it's the modern analytic data warehouse, like a columnar data store such as Snowflake or Redshift or BigQuery, where you have storage that is very, very cheap and compute that stores, that scales infinitely, uh, to ELT tools like Fivetran and Airbyte that you can use off of the shelf. Uh, instead of having to write custom connectors to do ETL. So a lot of the tools have gotten better, uh, but that makes it so that you have a whole new family of problems emerging because to have data be used within an organization, number one, you need data, but number two, you need context. Like The people using the data need to understand what it means. And at the end of the day, data just describes things that happen in the real world. Right. And number three, you need trust. Uh, that when your CFO looks at this financial reporting dashboard, they actually believe that that is the number and not whatever is in their head. So you need data, context, and trust so that increasingly data engineers are spending their time working on the second two, which are actually very challenging problems because not only do you need better tech, but you also need to be talking with stakeholders. There's a lot of human to human work. Right. Right. No, I can, I can only imagine. I know just in my day to day job, you know, I, I, I may go, Hey, I, you know, I wish I could pull, you know, this query and this query from Salesforce and this query from telemetry about, you know, customer feedback, you know, you know, customer usage of the product and this trend with, you know, how our SEO program is running. And so, yeah, just, 
being able to sort of pull all those things, knowing where to go find it, um, you know, knowing am I getting like up to date data? How long? How old is it? All those things, just from a you know kind of a, a noob like myself in the data world, uh, I can only imagine it gets way more complicated in in pretty sophisticated industries. Um, yeah, go ahead. By the end of the day, uh, you are the expert. That's the thing that I feel like a lot of data teams are only starting to really realize is like, Brian, the person who's asking for these reports, when you get the data, you know what it means. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. I, I, do have, I do have that, that context of you know, what we're going to do with it for the business. That's true. And at the end of the day, right, data is only meant to empower the rest of the organization. I don't mean that in like a buzzwordy sort of way, but I really mean it that you can put all of the data into Snowflake that you want. If no one uses it, there's no purpose in doing that. Right. Yeah. It, it becomes a becomes a data closet or a data attic or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, let's talk about this concept of, of data observability. Um, you know, we've we've talked on this show about you know what what we kind of well well I shouldn't say we what what the industry kind of called observability right. So whether it's from a data dog or honeycomb or observe or other companies that, you know, label what they do, you know, typically kind of infrastructure or APM monitoring. Um, what, you know, what, what does data observability mean to you? What's, you know, what are some of the things that it's bringing to that technology stack? Well, if we go back to observability, like software observability, I would define it as a concept that describes how much visibility you have into a system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this really goes back to even the origins of the term in control theory, where uh, in control theory, you want to understand, okay, given some system, how controllable is it, right? Given my inputs, how can I change the internal state? Well, if you flip that around, the observability of a system is given the outputs of a system, how can I infer the internal state? Okay. Uh, and the, the three pillars of software observability of metrics, traces, and logs is kind of an attempt to take that idea of like what categories of information do we need to fully infer the state of a software system. And if you have metrics, traces, and logs, right, like whether it's a CPU utilization of an EC2 server, uh, time-correlated events that happen across the server and different pieces of, it, of your infrastructure, as well as the most granular logs, that you can use these three pillars to kind of reconstruct the state of what was going on. Yeah, uh, That's really the goal of Datadog and Honeycomb and Observe, is you want to know the state of your infrastructure, not only right now, but also going back. But of course, you can't store everything. Right. So you only need to store the most important parts. Right. Uh, Data observability applies that same chain of reasoning, but to data systems, right? Like tables in a database, uh, where instead of metrics, traces, and logs, what we like to think about is two pillars that describe the internal and the external characteristics of data, like metrics, such as what is the mean or the nullness of a column in a table Uh, What is the metadata, like the schema and the number of rows and when it was loaded, as well as two pillars describing interactions, Uh, whether it's internal interactions like the lineage from one piece of data from another or logs that describe how it's consumed by external systems like a stakeholder uh, reading a dashboard 
which uses a table in your data warehouse. Uh, and this is important because data is fundamentally different from software. Of course, there's a lot of overlaps, right? A lot of data is generated by software systems and stored within software systems. But when it comes to the day-to-day practice, there are some important distinctions. Like, you know the old adage, like, treat your infrastructure like cattle? Yeah. Um, You can't do that with data, right? right? right. Like, data, you have to treat them almost like thoroughbred racehorses. You can't just... Like drop oh you know a thousand rows of customer data just gone I'll just you know resume it tomorrow if it yeah, goes I'll down just, like, I'll just spin up another one with whatever data <laughs> I feel like yeah no I I everybody I know that works in the storage industry sort of laughs sometimes at the guys who work in compute because they go look you know a bad day in compute you can spin back up a bad day in storage or data is is a nightmare I mean it's just so yeah I can completely appreciate that for sure and that also speaks to a bit of how severe data issues can get, right? Like we, we've been talking about the CFO looking at a fictional dashboard, but you can imagine if this data is going into like a recommender model that, or like a machine learning model that allocates ad spend, you can quickly burn through like ungodly amounts of money uh, if no one is keeping a pulse on that. Yeah, so I, I want to... I want to kind of, you know, maybe maybe dumb this down a little bit or kind of maybe put it into business speak. So one of the things, if I talk about kind of application observability or infrastructure observability, like one of the, you know, the, the common kind of use cases is they'll go, well, you know, let's suppose you want to monitor the response time of, of your website because, you know, you want to know if you're you know, sending out an image of a, of a dress or um, you're trying to figure out like, is there a bottleneck as to why they're not getting to the, um, you know, to the cart and the checkout. What's maybe what's a, you know, kind of common way that you explain, you know, to a CFO or to somebody, you know, what is, what is data observability telling me? Um, maybe that's similar to analogy like that. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, data observability tells you when, the data may be incorrect. Okay. Whether it's from the perspective of a, a specific task, for example, that we're using data to determine on a daily basis which customers should receive which email. And then if the data that goes into that workflow is updated, you know, is delayed, that's the kind of issue that we would service. Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Or like separate from a task if there's some internal quality issue, like a referential integrity constraint is being violated, uh, which may not cause an issue right now, but could easily cause a fan out and impact many downstream models. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, and that, and that makes a ton of sense when you start thinking about how sort of interconnected systems are these days. And, and this system depends on data from somebody else, and they're going to use it to build their model. And yeah, I can see... I can see where that that sort of spread could happen very quickly. Right, right. And it's, you remember how developing software was, you know, like 10 years ago. And this wasn't true all over the case, but I would sometimes paint it as like, you, you're building a Ruby on Rails app, you push it to an EC2 box, you have a heartbeat check, and you kind of call it a day, right? right. There's, um, uh, you know, of course, this wasn't the case all over the world, but Oftentimes, the the instrumentation that we had was much poorer than what we have today, 
with some of the observability tools that we mentioned before. Uh, but in the data world, it's very, very difficult to know when something goes wrong. Uh, we like to say that data is, is silent. Sure. Where if, if a table is usually loaded with a million rows every hour, and then one hour there's an upstream ETL issue that causes data to not, not be loaded, uh, typically you won't find out for a very long time. And the first person who finds out is the person who uses that data, right? It's the Brian's of the world who are looking at the dashboards and saying, wait a second, this doesn't look right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. And that, and that's one of those, like you said, it's one of those weird frustration moments where you're like, okay, uh, am, am I losing my mind? Is the data wrong? <laughs> and, you're, and you're not really sure what it is. It's a little bit of a murder mystery at that point. It, exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I'm curious. So, you know, we've, Unlike the infrastructure and sort of application side, we've we've kind of come up with these these intersections that happen right between uh, you know we we call it DevOps or we call it DevSecOps or these these sort of things where it's like this group needs to work with this group because you know you're you're trying to move things more quickly you're trying to create agility. Do we see those sort of synergies? Is it is it between the the data engineering team and the analytics engineering team? Are there are the, the are, are you know do we see these sort of like groups that have to, you know, work over the fence, uh, happen around data engineering and data observability? Absolutely. And you, you hit the nail on the head where there's a new term emerging called data ops, which envelops a little bit of what you're describing, uh, and speaks to the need for almost like contracts between the data team and other teams. Uh, at the end of the day, the data team does not produce and does not consume data. Uh, despite us, you know, being called the data or the analytics team, right? Data comes from upstream product analytics, right. from go-to-market teams uh, in Salesforce and Marketo and your customer support or success tool, uh, and then it goes back into those tools and goes into BI tools and. Between the data team and every single team that generates data and every single team that consumes data, I believe there should be a contract in place for to set expectations of what data what data needs to look like and how quickly it needs to be there. Yeah, uh, and it goes both ways. Like uh, a very very common data quality issue. That you know, I've certainly caused this issue is something innocuous like changing the name of a product analytics event. That can wreak complete havoc on downstream systems, but the person making the change doesn't necessarily know that. Yeah. So what you're talking about is is maybe less of what people would think of as sort of an SLA, where you're just you're expecting, you know, hey, how fast will something happen or how available will it be? You're really talking about something that's it's a contract in the in the sense of, you know, there's a there's a recognition or a collaboration between two groups about about some common goal, but you're also it seems like there's a there's somewhat of a of an education aspect in this to such that you don't you know people realize like hey you you know if you make these kinds of changes which maybe you will or maybe you won't you know these are sort of the outputs or this these are the impacts and if you you know if you make these kinds of changes or you're wanting you know twice as much data um, you know you need to understand certain things I mean is it 
Is that exactly kind of what you're thinking about? Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like when you're, it's like when you're dealing with a builder of a new house, you know, you're like, Hey, could you do that? And they're like, sure, but it's going to cost you, or it's going to take this much time. Um, and people don't always understand the ramifications of those changes. That's totally right. Um, I think, and even if the price tag hurts at first, or if hearing no stings a little bit at the end of the day, having aligned expectations is good for everybody in the organization Yeah, because to go back to the idea of trust in data, what we've seen working with like hundreds of teams is that trust is at the end of the day, your confidence that another party will uphold a contract, right? And it might be a formal contract, but if you don't have a formal contract, you kind of fall back to your informal expectations. And Unfortunately, the expectations that the rest of the organization might have on the data team could be almost impossible to fulfill. Right. Well, and I and I have to suspect there's also some some just some basic things that that if you don't live in the data world, you don't maybe understand the the scope or the magnitude of certain things. I mean, so if you told somebody, you know, hey. Um, you know, you get some product manager or some marketing person who goes like, hey, I want all of this viewpoint for the last 30 or 40 days. And you go, OK, well, that's going to take, you know, 75 terabytes. And they're like, well, I don't I don't know what that means. Like, whatever. Yeah, just go, go do that. Or, you know, um, you know, having a conversation with somebody and going like, well, how many A-B tests do you run when you're doing this marketing campaign for SEO? Like, should be running 10,000 or five or 900 million or like numbers mm. sometimes I think when they get big are very hard for people to wrap their head around. They always, you know, they go back to being like, well, how much money do I make or how big is the, the hard drive on my laptop or something that's tangible to them. And so I imagine some of these conversations get kind of a lot of blank stares sometimes. And and that's, edu- <laughs> and that's part of the education process, I think. It definitely is. And also a sign of the maturity of the field where sure. I think like the same thing applied to software teams, like how many across the world, how many, you know, CEOs are like, why can't we just make an API that's always up? Right. <laughs> right. Like, we, we know how challenging that is. Like every nine that you add is an order of magnitude more effort. Right. But right. it's hard to understand that uh, from the outside, like you're saying. And I think that's very, um, I guess, empathetic to like see how that applies to the data org too, where, you know, two requests that sound equally complex, like, oh, can you please pull this number for one customer? Oh, and can we please add that other dimension of data to our data set? You know, one could take five minutes. The other one could take five weeks. It's hard to tell from the outside. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, I want to wrap up. I want to give you kind of one, uh, give you a shot to sort of, you know, plug a little bit of what what you're doing at at, uh, at Metaplane. Like what are, you know, for, for your customers, what are some of the sort of immediate results, whether it's some of the data engineering team sees or the CFO sees or the, you know, VP of marketing sees, like what are what are some of the kind of tangible results that folks might, might expect to see uh, implementing, you know, data observability? You know, once they implement Metaplane and we really pride ourselves on being, the tool that's the easiest to bring on, right? It's our perspective that data observability should be something that every data team or every company with data should have, uh, not just those that are you know, prepared to invest a lot of time and a lot of money. And the companies that bring us on almost immediately see a greater sense of data awareness. 
whether it's saying, oh, shoot, like, so this is how my schema is changing over time and the distribution of uh, tables by row in my database and how these distributions are changing. And then, like, as issues come up, they face fewer issues of lower severity. They have faster time to identify issues because we have anomaly detection in the background running for you that try and surface outliers and also faster time to resolve issues because we provide the lineage and the context around issues to help you kind of prioritize and also help you debug. And what that rolls up to at the end of the day is saving engineers time because like data engineers are already, you know, they're already stretched very thin, sure. but the, the highest, you know, the biggest bang for your buck is like talking with stakeholders and really getting data into their systems and helping them get educated and building use cases around data, not necessarily having to debug, you know, some esoteric outage upstream. So we try and take care of that sort of thing for you as much as we can. Good stuff. Good stuff. Kevin, I, uh, like I mentioned, we love, uh, we love, we always love two things. We love digging in with, uh, you know, with, with newer companies, people that are kind of, you know, changing the paradigm, what's going on. And also, uh, you know, most importantly, trying to learn about some new topics. So thank you so much for the time today. Um, kind of, you know, we, we've scratched the surface on digging into to data observability, um, lots more on the, on the Metaplane site and, and things out there. Um, folks, I want to thank Kevin on behalf of, of Aaron. And I want to thank Kevin for his time. Um, we're going to wrap it up with that. Um, as always, thanks for being on the show. Um, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for telling a friend. Uh, thanks to Kevin for listening for 10 plus years. Uh, you know, all of you should be like Kevin, right? Just stick with the <laughs> show. It it grows on you. Uh, but yeah, we want to want to thank everybody. Uh, thanks for giving us feedback on the show. Thanks for, you know, giving us ratings in all the places that you listen to the podcast. And with that, I'm going to wrap it up and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 